All right, so this is uh, lesson number four in the Reformation Starter Kit. It's the, the doctrines that you need to establish as the foundation of your family, of your life, of your church, if you're going to um, be revived, if you're going to be fruitful. And can anyone list the doctrines that we have already covered? It began with the sovereignty of God, very good. Then the centrality of Christ in all of life, including salvation, as opposed to the centrality of man. And then we move to the law of God over all of life. And today we're going to be looking at God's dominion over creation, God's dominion over creation. And we'll begin in Exodus chapter 9, verse 29. If you are familiar with the Exodus story, which I know most of you are, God says, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And the Pharaoh says, who is God that I should listen to him? Because you remember in ancient Egyptian culture, they believed that the head of the state, the Pharaoh, was God, much like the United States today. They had a form of statism, uh, just like we do today. And the Pharaoh believed himself to be an incarnation of the sun god or something like that. And so he said, why should I listen to Yahweh? And then God showed him why. With, uh, with the various plagues where he openly embarrassed all of the local deities of the Egyptians, including the Pharaoh, taking out his firstborn son. And so after, uh, after the plagues came down hard on Egypt, Pharaoh begged Moses to pray for him that God would relent. And, uh, and Moses did so. In verse 29 here it says, Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. And there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Amen? The earth is the Lord's. And of course, that includes the heavens. All of the creation is the Lord's. And that is sort of a, a summary statement to, to understand what it means when we say God has dominion. He has rule. He is Lord. He is king. Before, before Christ was ascended to heaven and given the throne over the dominion of the Father, you understand that's one of the essential aspects of the ascension. That Am I turned up too loud? Or it's okay? That God the Father, who has dominion over all things, gave to the Son at the ascension basically the keys. He gave him the dominion over all heaven and over all of earth. That's why Jesus says in the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me, in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. So Jesus has given that dominion over all the earth. But before Jesus was given that dominion, man, Adam, had dominion, but he squandered it, and it was taken from him, essentially, by Satan and by Satan's demonic forces, which is why when Jesus was walking on this earth, Satan appeared to him and said, look at all the kingdoms of the earth. If you bow down and worship me, serve me, become my prime minister, I will give you the dominion and the authority. You can see Satan playing as a rival God, a rival Yahweh. And Jesus, of course, didn't, says, no, I, I will not worship you. And, and you've heard me say this many times, but Jesus didn't say no because he didn't want the dominion over all the earth, but because he was going to take it by, by warfare, by the cross and through his resurrection. And so before Jesus was ascended and given the dominion over all the earth and Satan and his demons were cast out like lightning falling from the heavens and bound by a chain, you are familiar with these various verses, before that demons uh, had some form of dominion over the earth. Um, they were 
agents that God used to rule the earth. And that's hard to understand, but you can read a little bit about it if you read the early portion of Job, where Satan and the various sons of God are there in heaven in the, in the council of gods, and, and they're in the presence of God, and God commissions them and sends them out to do his bidding. And, and of course, he's using them, and, and they are of, of their nature evil, but he still uses evil people and evil demons. He sent a demon to torment Saul, as you, as you know, and uh, a demon as well to torment the Apostle Paul. Like Demons are used throughout the Bible. And the way we understand this is that when you think of ancient gods like Thor and Odin and Zeus, and we as Christians believe those to be demons that ruled over particular regions of the earth. And they, they're what we call tribal deities. And what were the names of the tribal deities that ruled over the land of Canaan? Baal, right, and Molech, and Asherah. And we believe those not to be merely fabrications of the imaginations of men, and certainly not just statues, but demons. Demons that had local um, authority. And you get a lot of this if you read the book of Daniel and you see how Michael, the archangel, fights with other cherubs. And I'm putting a lot together for you. But the reason I'm saying all this is before Christ, that's the way it was. But with the ascension, God, who has absolute dominion over everything, he's not a local deity. Jonah learned that when he sailed to Tarshish, that God was still God and that he could still get him out there, right? And a lot of people speculate that Jonah was misunderstanding that. Um, God is not a local deity. He has dominion over all the earth, and he gave that dominion to Jesus Christ, who's also not local. He has no, he has no boundaries to his jurisdiction. Right? Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So not only the earth, but anything that is grown or produced or brought up from the earth. It all belongs to the Lord. Make sense? And not only what comes out of the ground, but all the humans there and those who dwell therein. So, Lord has dominion. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. You can see one of the key passages in this. And to him was given dominion. That's speaking of the ascension when the Father gives to the Son pure dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. See, it has no boundaries, not in space nor in time. All nations are, sub- are to submit to Jesus and to his rule, all kings, all humans, period. And w- this kingdom which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen? All right, so far this is review. You've all heard that, right? Well, you've, you've heard me say it here and there. But, but I'm saying all of that to say what we find is incredibly interesting and very much good news is that that word in the Bible, dominion, which we'll talk about what it means, various things, but it basically means a king's rule, his reign over his jurisdiction, his dominion, his kingship. That's what it means, dominion. Um, that word is applied to humans. Right? And you wouldn't think that would be the case, that it makes sense that God, the creator and the sustainer of all things, would have dominion. And it makes sense that Jesus, the incarnate God, would have dominion. But that word is applied to little old you and me. And uh, it's right in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. It's a very important word. And I, I can remember people, because this, this concept, well, let me just say, this 
particular concept is quite foreign if you're from a pietistic or a revivalistic background, which most of you probably are. You know, for me, growing up and going to church was um, essentially getting saved every week or making sure you're saved every week. I lived in perpetual concern that I hadn't like reconciled with God at the altar. So I'm like at the altar, stuck outside the the tabernacle. Still, you know, do do not pass go, do not collect two hundred dollars. I'm every week I'm stuck at the altar going through whether or not Jesus died for me and asking for the altar to be applied to me. And, and that's kind of, that is very common in the revivalistic tradition, which is very prevalent in our, in our country. And essentially, I don't know if you, how much of the history you know, but when revivals broke out in this, in this country, they were incredibly successful and thousands and thousands of people would come to these massive rallies where essentially the core of the gospel was taught. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, make a decision. They were usually Arminian, so it was very heavy on doing various things in the revivals to get you to make a decision so that you could then be saved. So they'd have techniques like altar calls, that's where that technique comes, or anxious benches, or they would have people standing up at the front of the room and you'd go there and then they would take you into a small room where you could have sort of a, a crisis experience or a uh, struggle session with that person so that you make a decision and now you're a Christian. And of course, because you don't ultimately become a Christian because you've decided, right? It, but because Jesus decided and saved you, right? You, every week you have guilt, you have doubt, you're not sure if you're a Christian, and you never move past that, okay? So in that tradition, that revivalistic tradition, this concept of exercising dominion in the name of God is very, very foreign, I mean, think about what is what does God own? Everything. Does he own your heart? Yes, of course. Your heart should be under the dominion of King Jesus. They say, make him the Lord of your heart. Like, let him sit on the throne of your life, right? But in the revivalistic tradition, it, it very seldomly goes beyond your insides, your heart. They want you to decide to make, believe in Jesus, your Savior and Lord. Make him the king of your heart. But they don't understand, or they don't emphasize at least, that he is actually Lord over everything. Over City Hall, over the fields and the marshes and the swamps and space. And that he is exercising his dominion out there as well. It's not just about in here. Um, it starts in here, but then it goes out from there. In other words, you get right with God at the altar, and then you go on into the tabernacle, where he then gives you his law and your vocation, your mission, and then you go out from there to exercise dominion in his name over all the earth. They stay, they stop at the altar. And so it's very incomplete, and it, may, and it revivalist, revivalistic tradition, pietism, um, <clears throat> it keeps the church impotent. That's why this whole series is about how to regain potency for a church. It keeps the church impotent and irrelevant to the, to the larger society and to the world. And, and, to, and when Christians go out, and of course they're made in the image of God, and so they, they have a dominion in their heart, they want to take, they want to exercise dominion because we're created in the image of God, which we're going to see in a second. They don't know that there's a law that governs it, and they don't know that there's meaning and calling, and that's what Jesus wants them to do. So they think of their work as separate than their church. So it's like there's church service where it's holy and it counts, but the service Monday through Friday, you know, that's just to feed your family. 
They don't, and they can't connect it. It's because of that pietistic and revivalistic tradition that doesn't understand this very, very important aspect of the Bible, which is that God has dominion over everything, and he gives it to you and to me. Watch, Genesis chapter 1, it's the very first command given to man. Then God said, let us make man... Well, this isn't the command. This is the purpose that God is creating man for. Let us make man in our image. So our being is after the image of God, after our likeness. And let them have dominion. Why are we in his image? So that we can rule like him. So that we can image him. And and we have to be like him in order to have dominion. Because he's a king, we have to be little kings. We Around here we call them T-kings. T-kings, right. Harold knows what that means. We're T-kings. T-kings, T-queens. And it's because we're created in the image of God and we have this mission. Now, what is man to have dominion over? Is it over um, everything? Well, yeah, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. So we got down in the depths, in the abyss, and all the way up into the heavens. That's a poetic device that it's like from head to toe, Right? Your, your mama, when you're a kid, sitting you in the shower, make sure you wash your whole self, wash your, from head to toe, right? That means the, the whole, your whole body is washed. He says, for the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, so anything on the land. So you got the sea, you got the air, the heavens, and the land. And over all, by the way, you can see Genesis 1, we're supposed to eat beef. Just, just as a side note, we're... <laughs> vegetarianism is not taught in scripture I don't it's fine if you don't want to eat beef like if I was a Hindu and I just became a Christian I'd probably feel icky about it for a little while but we're supposed to eat beef right there livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth a crawfish amen 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 so you see man's created in the image of God we are rational we're self-conscious we have a will we possess authority and power and we make decisions and we exercise dominion. Animals don't have the equipment to exercise dominion and rule because they're not created in the image of God. But we do. And so that was the purpose that God stated why he would make man. Now here comes the uh, man having been made, the actual command. Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. So he created man to be king, to rule. The purpose of man is not first and foremost to cultivate warm feelings in your heart to your boyfriend Jesus, right? Or to have uh, quiet times, or to have intimate experiences of worship in a spiritual way here and there. That's not the purpose that you were made for. That's all great, right? That's fine. But that's not your primary purpose in life. Your primary purpose is to rule and reign in the name of King Jesus, right? To exercise dominion. Now, when this command was given, there's one thing that was different about the creation You know, that wasn't true, that is true today. And that's there was no sin on the earth yet. So after sin came into the world, this plan remains the same, except that there's a a greater obstacle. Now, 
Not only does man have to take dominion of the earth, now man's heart has to, have, has to be taken dominion of. See, that's, the, that's, what, that's what the gospel comes in. It doesn't then say, off with this plan. This isn't our goal anymore. We have no purpose in life anymore, but to, to uh, just, you know, sing songs and do church stuff, right? No, this is still what we're supposed to be doing, and uh, except that we have the sin problem in the heart of man has to be dealt with, because man was corrupted by sin. So it corrupts his image, it corrupts his decision-making, his will, his power, his authority is stripped from him. All of that has to be overcome, and by what means does God reconcile us and, and make us capable of exercising dominion in his name again? The gospel of Jesus Christ, through Christ and the Holy Spirit. Amen? All right, so real quick, let's just break down this command in Genesis 1.28. First of all, it says in verse 28 that man must actively take dominion. Right? It's a command. You must do it. This is why men who do not work should be church discipline. They, you cannot... Uh, be a Christian and refuse to do, take dominion, refuse to work. Sloth is a deadly sin. Sloth is a deadly sin, and it's sloths, sluggards, go to hell unless they repent and begin to take dominion. All right? It's a command that must, must be done. Also, notice that in order for Adam to take dominion over the whole earth, what's he going to need? He's going to need a lot of help. He's going to need a massive population. I mean, imagine how many people... It has taken and continues to take to turn sand into microchips that fly satellites. Imagine the numbers of people in the past, present, and more in the future that it requires to come alongside to exercise that much dominion, to, to, uh, bring, to subdue the earth and to bring up that full potential. It's going to take a lot of people. You're, and, and, uh, and so that's part of it. They have to be fruitful and multiply. Adam, can't, Adam can only be in one place at one time. He has to be fruitful and multiply so that there's increased specialization and increased division of labor and increased population, which means increased dominion, which is why God promises in the, in the covenant, in the gospel, that if you are faithful and obey, he will increase your population so that he can, you can have your dominion increased. It's just another way of saying you're faithful over a little. I'll give you much. I'll give you more. Right? It's also comprehensive. Look at um, verse, uh, uh, Psalm 8, verse 6. Speaking of man, you have given him, that is man, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, who is the man that ultimately fulfills this? Jesus, who has dominion over heaven and earth. But, let me see if I can just jump ahead real quick. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 2, verse 26 the one, I'm jumping ahead for you. Okay, you got the, the one who conquers, speaking of Christians, and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. So who has authority over the nations? Who has rule over the earth? Who has dominion? Jesus and his bride, his church, just as a queen um, shares in the authority that her king husband has. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. The same language that's used of Jesus in Psalm 2, referring to God giving dominion to the Son, is now used for Jesus giving dominion to Christians. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So do you see? The dominion over the earth and over the heavens and over the sea is passed from God the Father to the Son and shared with the saints. Now, I grew up in, in, uh, in a church culture 
And by the way, if anyone's listening on this recording, I'm not bringing up these contrasts to make fun of anyone or to tear anyone down. I'm trying to help uh, us reform. I'm trying to help us change. And so in my uh, personal experience, I was raised in a church that had an apocalyptic worldview. So not only are we mostly concerned about our insides, our hearts, right, and our feelings towards God and whether or not we're saved, it's all very here, we are also taught that the world's about to be over with. So it, you see how it, it, it strips away the impetus for taking dominion because the world's about to be over with. You know, any, oh, there's war in Israel. We better, you better get ready. I wouldn't, I, this is the phrase, I wouldn't buy no green bananas. <laughs> and I, and I've told this story many times, I sold all my stock that I'd been saving um, because I thought the world was going to be coming. I was like, why keep investing long term when the world's going to be You see how that present orientation, as opposed to a future orientation, strips you of your purpose and your meaning, taking away the impetus for dominion, which is it's dehumanizing you. And it's emasculating you if you're a man. It is incredibly bad for the church. It makes the church impotent and effeminate and purposeless. And, and we're human, so that doesn't mean they're just going to go on without anything filling the void. No, they find their purpose in other things outside of the will of Christ. Right. So back to uh, the command in Genesis chapter 1. Kevin, sorry to make you jump all over the place. But uh, back to the command in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Notice what it says. It says, be fruitful and multiply. So have children. This is why it is a, it is a sin for a couple, any couple, Christian or non-Christian, to say, you know what, we're not going to have children. That is a sin. Let's say that it is a sin. That is why it is also a sin to unduly delay marriage. Read the Westminster Confession. See our heritage. People were disciplined for undue delay of marriage. Sometimes you're delayed in getting married, obviously. And sometimes that's of no fault of your own. Sometimes it is your fault. Sometimes it's not your fault. Sometimes it's a little bit of both. But if you are intentionally delaying marriage, that's a sin. And if you're refusing to have children, that's a sin. Because we are commanded, first command, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. That's the first command. Amen? Uh, you know, the, you, if you, honestly, if you want to reform your church, just start with that statement. That way, you can either be fired or half the congregation can leave, and then you can work with what remains, right? You can work with what remains. But that right there is, I know that that's very offensive, but I don't think anyone could prove that I'm not quoting the literal verses from the Bible and haven't made a good biblical case. Be fruitful and, be, and multiply. And, uh, and that's hard, right, dads? That's hard. It's really hard on the dads, right? <laughs> Sorry. I'm just, it's really hard on the dads, you know? We have to deal with all those kids. Right, Tor? You know what I'm saying? All right. But <laughs> all one of them, yeah. Be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, it's tough. It's a, it's a sacrifice, but that's our purpose. That's our calling in life. It's great. Um, that doesn't by, mean, by the way, that you have to have every, like, as many kids as you possibly could. Um, that's not what I mean. I have a whole series on uh, biblical contraception, if you want to know what the Bible says about it. I have a whole series on it, like four or five classes. But anyway, moving on. I wanted to point out right here that it says not only be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, but it says subdue it. Subdue it. What is subdue? So subdue is... Um, that, uh, 
right here, means to bring all the space and the resources under the control of man's wise management and control to use for the increased glory of God and the good of your fellow man. That's what it means to subdue. So a great example is the domestication of chickens. Chickens have been subdued. Um, they were wild jungle fowl flying through the treetops, making one egg every six months, one clutch every season. But, but man uh, brought the full potential out of what the chicken could be so that now they drop an egg every single day. And, and billions of people live off of eggs. And if, especially if you're on keto, it's like your chick, the chicken is your, your best friend because it's one of the things you can eat that tastes good and doesn't have any carbohydrates in it. <clears throat> now, the, um, the effects of the fall on dominion, I already said briefly, but man is, is uh, corrupted in his nature, and so he has to be redeemed if he's going to fulfill his purpose. All right? And then moving on to the standards of dominion. What are the standards of dominion? How do you take a particular field, whether it be a literal field or a field of study. Right? That's where the word comes from. How do you take dominion of it? You apply God's law to your daily tasks. The law of God first condemned you and was bad news and smelled like death to you. Ugh, quit guilt tripping me if you, before you were a Christian. But now that you're a Christian, you're no longer under the condemnation of the law. It doesn't, it doesn't make you angry or make you run in shame. Now you see it as his good will towards you, showing you how to live. So it goes from condemnation to guidance and instruction and correction and training. So you love the law of God and you obey the law of God in everything that you do every single day. That is your tools for taking dominion. Make sense? If you don't follow the laws then you can't expect to be blessed and to be fruitful. Amen? Um, now, this does bring up a side note. Satan, who hates God and cannot obey God, he also wants to rule the world. Everybody wants to rule the world until you become a Christian. Satan wants to rule the world, and, uh, but he disobeys God and hates God, and so his tools for his dominion is not obedience to the law of God, but disobedience to the law of God, which is why marriage is being corrupted today. Right? He, I mean, he's really done a number on our country. He wants to break every rule, um, whether it come to your bedroom practices or your business practices or your education of your children. Satan wants to rule over you and over your, your dominion, and he's going to do it through law-breaking. And so anytime you think that you're going to get ahead by law-breaking, you're really just doing the bidding of Satan. But because Satan lives in this world, and he is a creature, and he is beholden to God, he has to borrow some of God's rules to be any, any bit successful. You understand what I mean? So you, that's why you can find a non-Christian businessman who hates God and worships the demon of mammon, and he can write a book on business and you'll read through that book and you will see he's actually got some stuff in here that's correct. And it's working for him. But, you, but the purpose of it is still contaminated by sin. He's no longer doing it in the name of God, but in the name of self. But he has to, he has to hold to some of just the standards of God for him to even live. 
You know what I mean? So that's why you'll find things about this business should be about service, about your fellow man. Yes, okay, that's correct. And, but he has to borrow a little bit from God in order to even make it. I mean, if the devil were to build a bridge, he would have to follow the math rules if it was going to ever transport anyone. And, uh, and so the devil does, he, he takes the law of God and he twists it just a little bit. This is why you see cultures like the... Um, like uh, classical Athens, where there, where there were people that said abortion was wrong. In the first, uh, um, the first Hippocratic Oath, written by a pagan, it, you swear as a doctor not to abort babies. Well, how do they know that? Because they, they have, they, to have a population, right? to have a society, they can't completely sacrifice all their children to the gods. They have to have some of the laws of God being obeyed. This is why you see Stalin, even after his domination of the Soviet Union, mandating men and women getting married and mandating how many children they would have after attacking marriage for so many years. You would see that in our country. If the seculars continue to dominate, eventually they will have to switch because not everyone can be gay and, uh, and not have any children or else you have population decline and, you, and then the, the state loses its power. So they would eventually borrow some of God's law to have dominion. Um, in uh, Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, we, we turn to the restoration of man's dominion. This is uh, in, the, in the promises to the patriarchs. Genesis twenty-two seventeen, the Bible says, Thy seed shall possess. Right, do you have the whole passage right there? I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. Who is he speaking to here? Anyone? Yeah, Abraham. And as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of its enemies. Now, does anyone recognize that language? That language comes from Genesis chapter 1. Do you see it right there? So in the promise to Abraham, it's very important. In the promise to Abraham is the dominion mandate. I will restore the dominion to man is essentially what he's saying. You will be multiplied and you will possess and not only that, now there's bad guys. So not only will you exercise dominion over animals and over uh, the soil, and, uh, but you will exercise dominion over the cities, the gate of your own enemies. So not, the enemies, the bad guys, will be defeated as well. That's the promise of the gospel, that the, the dominion over all creation will be restored to man, and all the evildoers will be, will be eradicated. Make sense? All right, now look at uh, Genesis chapter 28, verse 14. This is to Isaac. Same thing. Abraham, Isaac, your, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east. You see the whole earth being filled and spread, and to the north and to the south, and you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You see more dominion language over the whole earth, over the whole earth. And in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 6, listen to what Paul writes about the promises to Abraham, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. <coughs> so, what was God communicating to Abraham when he said, you're, you're, you will be multiplied, you will inherit the whole earth, you will possess 
all of this. You will, all your enemies will be defeated, and, uh, and, and, and I'm going to do that through your seed, through Jesus. Right? What was he preaching to Abraham? What was he explaining to Abraham? Yeah, the gospel. In the New Testament, we say the gospel. But the gospel is, in part, man's restored kingship over the earth. And if you persevere in the book of Revelation, Jesus says he shares that with you. So I, as a child, I was raised under the assumption that with an apocalyptic worldview, which is very detrimental to your faith, that it's all going to be over with, which is the exact opposite of I've been restored as a, as a human in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, and I have a job to do on earth. Not only that, it is connected with my children and my grandchildren so that God's purposes on this earth might spread, that the knowledge of the Lord would fill the earth like the waters cover the sea, and that the coastlands would cry out for the law of God, and that all the nations would stream into Zion, asking them to teach us how to live. All of this I threw into the future after an apocalypse. That was my worldview. The world is going to end, but then after this apocalypse, there was going to be a time on earth where we would get this ball rolling. Now, fortunately, me and, and my friends and my parents and really everyone didn't live consistent with that worldview. Thank God he has enough grace for us to help us live inconsistently. Right? <laughs> Otherwise, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Um, but if you are intellectually consistent and you see this, you can see how that apocalyptic worldview, that throwing everything into the future, all of this into the future, really strips the church of a lot of its power and purpose and makes church all about getting people to make decisions every single Sunday through various techniques. Round and round we go, round and round we go to complete irrelevance and impotency. And, And it's essentially abdicating the earth to Satan, which then, and that's the company is this, They believe Satan will win and that Satan has dominion and that the church is going to shrink into a final little tiny little remnant and then we'll all be disappeared out of here. It It is directly opposed to our mission and our purpose and the good news of the Bible. And thank God there, there are millions of people around the world and, and many, many Christians in America are, who are awakening from this demonic slumber, this brainwashing, and re, recapturing or trying to recapture by grace through faith the earth in the name of King Jesus. In the name of King Jesus. And if you're new to all of this, you know, just don't... don't Swallow it all whole right today, don't, but also don't reject it whole. Just put it on the shelf and just let it sit there for a little while, all right? Just let it simmer. And uh, talk to me later, talk to other people, and just and see what the Lord has for you. But don't dig your heels in yet. I would, I would, I would ask you that pastorally. Don't dig your heels in yet. And, but also don't, you know, you're not a codfish. You don't have to swallow everything I say immediately. Um, just, just let it sit on the shelf for a little while. See what the Lord does with it. <clears throat> now, Moving on, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, we see because we're in a fallen world that, that Jesus has to give his, his disciples, you know, a slightly altered, at least in the verbiage, um, mandate. So now what do they have to do? They have to go, right? The command was always fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It was always go, 
Therefore, and the therefore is because all authority, all dominion has been given to him. So now in his name. And what we're to do is make disciples of the nations, of all nations. So in order to make disciples of all nations, what does the, the first century church have to do? They got to fan out. They have to spread out. That's exactly what Adam was doing. Right? But now they're not just overcoming the thorns and the, and the uh, you are, I mean, the, you know, they're not just turning a, a good earth into a garden of Eden. There's a lot of sin and dragons and demons to fight. So once you go, then what do you do? You make disciples of the nations, all nations. This is the impetus for so many missionaries going all around the world. is because there, if there was a little island out in the Pacific and there was no disciples of Jesus there, the church as a whole was to send them there and make disciples of those people. And that's why, that's why we've had so many missionaries go throughout the earth. And uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, that's the initiation rite for entering into the church. And then how do you train them up to, to exercise dominion, to do their job in, in, in this world? By the next verse. Teaching them to observe, I was hoping to be able to read it, but teaching them to observe all that I, Jesus, has commanded. What is the mission of the church? Is it to preach and sing songs in such a way so as to engineer a, a, an experience so that people will activate their autonomous will and let Jesus save them, make a decision for Jesus, and, and do that week after week after week. That is not our mission. It is a part of it. We have to preach the gospel. And I have a whole class on evangelism and how that fits with the dominion mandate. But our mission is to go to the, and baptize nations and teach the nations to observe, to obey all that Jesus commands. I mean, how growing up, I, I was not under teaching that was intentionally trying to teach me all the commands of Jesus so that I could know how to exercise dominion for him in my life. There were certain commands that were repeated, and there were many commands that were added that Jesus never taught, okay? The cultural things, which developed in me a cultural conscience, very scared of what everyone thought about me, instead of a conscience built on the law of God. So a lot of laws were taken away, a lot of laws were added, but there wasn't a conscious decision in this, in this revivalistic movement to teach people how to live by teaching them all the commandments of Scripture and to be careful to observe all that I command, that we might live well in the land and prosper, as, as God promises us in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And so I really, I really do hope, we're running out of time here, but I really do hope that going through these particular lessons can show you essentially the foundations of Christ church. And unfortunately, some of the distinctions of Christ's church, unfortunately, and we have to continue to pray that God would uh, reveal these truths to uh, the hearts and minds of Christians all over the world. Amen? Now, and these things, I don't bring up these particular things because they're my hobby horse, all right? I bring them up because they are so absent in American Christianity. They're missing and not only are they missing, they are under attack, right? And so that's why I bring them up, to, so that all of us can be uh, equipped and have clarity on, on these particular matters. Amen? So if, 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 if all of this has resonated with you, what do you think your first, the first thing you should do is? Step one. Before even getting married. 
Yeah, you have to know God's word, yes. But even before you begin that journey or somewhere toward the first part of that journey, you have to repent of being a a non-dominion Christian. You have to repent of thinking, I go to church for uh, cathartic experiences or therapeutic um, massages or I don't know, whatever spiritual people do. Repent of that, repent of that and say, no, I, have, I in Jesus Christ, have been given a mission and, and it involves something out there, not just in here. We don't need everyone to be a pastor, right? We need you to be you because God has given you particular gifts and particular resources to do your job. What is it that he's called you to do? The first thing you have to do is repent of just living day in and day out without a conscious awareness that God has a job for you to do. He saved you so that you might serve him. Amen? You repent of that. And, and then, what else, then at that point, you are now individually under the dominion of God. You want to make sure that you have repented of that. You obviously want to repent of any known sins and plead the blood of Christ that he, because he can restore you, right? But, but then what do you do? Maybe you get married if you're the right age and you're marriage material. If not, start becoming marriage material, right? Through the power of Jesus Christ, through his gospel. And uh, what else? Anything else? If you're a father, what would you do? You would, you would say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we are LSU fans. I mean, how many people said that this week? I, I see on Facebook some young punks, like, celebrating Bama. I mean, right? Wow. Okay. Talk about wanting to get killed, right? And I don't really care either way. I'm not, I didn't, I'm not a college football guy. But I watch the games because I like to hang out with people. So <laughs> I watch them watching the game, basically. And, uh, but when a, if a young son were to say in a real LSU home, you know, the people with the, the get up and the gear, a young son would be like, when Bama scores a touchdown, yay! You know, what, what happens? Did, did any of y'all have any experience with that? He get, you get, I remember my papaw, that's what you call him in Shreveport, my papaw. My brother was being funny and cheering for the Oilers, I think, and they were playing the, or the Dolphins, maybe. I can't remember, but they were playing the Cowboys, and he literally kicked my brother out of the house. He said, this is a Cowboy family. This is a Cowboy family. But how many, how many dads would be like, in this family, we're Saints fans, and yet they don't say, in this family, we serve the Lord. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. Now, be, I can, you can do both, right? But first and foremost, <laughs> first and foremost, you then, after you've placed your own heart under the dominion of King Jesus, you say with Joshua, as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Amen? And then, and, and this is kind of wooden, obviously this is a complicated subject, but then you need to scout out a field. If you're 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, you should begin the pre, you would be in the preliminary stages of scouting out various fields and your dad and mom are helping you so that you can come to understand what are my gifts? What are the tools that God has given me? What are the opportunities? What are the needs? See what I mean? You know, who are some people in this particular field that inspire me and they've gone before me and I, and I want to emulate my life after them? You begin to scout out a field, do some reconnaissance. A literal field, maybe, if you want to be a farmer. But, you know, I mean, I don't mean a literal field. I mean a field of study, a field of, of uh, vocation. 
right? Whether it's construction or the culinary arts or uh, education or administration or teaching Greek, right? <laughs> and all of the other things. She takes a lot of dominion of the school over various things. Um, or uh, think of all the things that, that we represent here. What, what does God call me to? Let me sink my teeth into that. Be faithful with the little. Trusting that God's going to multiply my meager efforts, right? And, and obeying his law in all that you do throughout that. And you will begin to find your purpose, right? You will begin to, to be blessed by him, I really do believe. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, y'all have a great Lord's Day. T. Royce. T. Royce, I know. <laughs> T. Kings. T. Royce. T. Royce.